Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, Adam. Thanks so much for coming on. You know, for people tuning in, we've got Adam Murato here. He's a maternal fetal medicine physician um, who I'm really kind of surprised hasn't been sort of canceled yet for some of his, you know, he really goes after like the sacred cow of um, antidepressants and pregnancy. And he's not saying things like, hey, you know, no one should ever take antidepressants if they're pregnant. Um, But, you know, I call it a sacred cow because when I went through my training, like you didn't even question this. I mean, if you brought up, hey, there could have been a problem or there could have been, you know, some drawback where maybe you want to be a little careful about exposing fetuses to antidepressants, you know, people would kind of make you feel like you were dangerous, that you were shaming them, you know, that come on, these women have it hard enough, you know, they're going through all of this and now you're just going to make it more difficult for them. And so this was an area where consistently, my professors and the people that I saw really downplayed the risks, explained them away. Um, and so, you know, just it's, it's surprising that yeah, I guess maybe, yeah, yeah, that, that, that more, pe- more people haven't come for you. Somehow you're still safe, but I, I think it really is one of those sacred cows that really gets under people's skin. So wel- welcome to the show and, uh, and uh, thanks for being here. I'm very happy to be here. I'm, I'm happy for you to have me here. I think you brought up a great point right out of the gate, which is that this is not about pill shaming or about making pregnant women or women of childbearing age feel guilty about their approaches to care. It has nothing to do with that. Um, I have an interest in medication exposures in pregnancy. Um, I take, I'm a maternal fetal medicine specialist. I'm a full-time clinician. I take care of patients in my hometown. These women I take care of are my neighbors. They're in my community. And, um, you know, I want to take good care of them and provide them with good information. I have an interest in medication exposures in pregnancy, and um, it's a focus of mine. I write about it, I lecture on it, and I counsel patients about it every day. And the key issue is trying to explain or get pregnant women um, the information that they're looking for. Many patients will ask, and this happens to me every day, what are the effects of this medication on the developing baby. And so they, they have a right to know this. They deserve this information. And so it's about getting them the information. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. What are the effects on the baby? But answering that question and trying to get the right information to them is not about pill shaming or making them feel guilty. Pregnant women deserve compassionate care. And, uh, and part of that compassionate care is providing them with accurate information and then letting them make the best decisions that they want to make and then supporting them in those decisions. But the importance of, of information is really, it really is very important important. And so that's what I seek to do. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Mike's, and we're going to go into the data later on, because I'm going to get your whole kind of causal thesis on, you know, what it does specifically with behavioral changes, autism, all that kind of good stuff. That's very interesting for the people listening. But I want to ask you about my experience, which was that whenever this was brought up in the past, you know, it's kind of glossed over, explained away, kind of diminished that there is a risk was this an isolated instance for me or is this something that you hear, something that you've experienced when you've talked about this? What, what, what do you notice about other colleagues 
you know, what, what they say about this kind of issue of, I guess, behavioral problems, you know, when, when the kids are exposed in utero to antidepressants. Yeah, I, I think you're asking, uh, raising a really important issue. I think there's two reasons that come up for why this gets glossed over. And um, one of them is a better reason, I think, than others. Uh, people are concerned, uh, my colleagues, uh, other people taking care of pregnant women with mental health issues are concerned that if questions are raised about the effects of these drugs in pregnancy, that there might be a patient who will then decide to come off of her medications and do poorly. Um, and that's something, you know, nobody wants, nobody wants a pregnant woman doing poorly. And so there's some, there's some concern or fear about that. I I try to separate it for were you going to ask a question? Yeah, Lisa? I was going to say, but okay, so they don't want a pregnant woman to do poorly, but do you want a pregnant woman's child to have an increased risk of behavioral problems? Like, I guess it's, it's the counterpoint to that, right? Sure. And I, and I yeah. think it's a, it's a very, I think it's a very complex question. And then there are issues about stopping abruptly mm-hmm. and what the effects of that will be. I, I try to separate into two separate questions. So one question is, uh, what are the effects of these medications? Uh, medications are synthetic chemical compounds. They come out of chemical manufacturing facilities. What are the effects of these chemicals on the developing baby? So that's an important question. It's a legitimate question. It's a scientific question. It's a question that patients are asking, and we should give them a good answer to that. The second question people have, or the second issue is, for an individual patient, should she stay on her medication or should she come off of it? That's a different question. And so I think it's important to try to keep those things separate and try to answer the question about the effects of the medications. And then for patients, it's a case-by-case basis uh, that involves counseling, information, support, etc. I think... Uh, Go ahead, Joseph. I was going to say, but... You know, what you bring up is interesting because I actually don't think people can make that second that second one. You know, you split them out into two questions, like should the woman stay on her antidepressant? She would probably want to know the risks. You know, what is the data about what this does to the fetus to inform her choice to do That's that? A- you know, wh- whether I'm going to take this risk, whether I'm going to destabilize my mood after I've been on this for a long time. You, you need one to answer two, right? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, that's correct. What happens though is that when you start talking about one, when you start talking about chemical effects of the medications on the fetus, people immediately start thinking that you're making a judgment about the second question or telling pregnant women, a pregnant woman, an individual pregnant woman that she can't be on her medication, she has to stop abruptly, but that's not the case. That discussion about an individual patient is is much more nuanced and complex and it's something that involves her history, etc. Let me ask you this though. I'm going to jump. Why, why sure. do you think? Why do you think people so frequently misinterpret um, asking questions about uh, the risks as being pill shaming or, or trying to say that a woman should come off medications? What, what's? I'm 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 sure you've probably pondered this uh, before because I bet you've heard it a lot. What, what's behind this missing of the point? Sure. Well, I think, like I said, the the one reason that that uh, is there, which is is actually a, a 
fairly good reason is that people are concerned for their patients and for women and they don't want them to be shamed. And I, and I agree with that. And I think that that's a legitimate reason. The second part of this though, is that I think the pharmaceutical industry is the, the 600 pound gorilla in the room and the pharmaceutical industry, um, a lot has a, a, a large segment of women that are on antidepressants and other mental health drugs are women of childbearing age. And so they, they want this issue off the table, the effects in pregnancy. And so they've sort of rolled out a conventional wisdom on this topic. And the conventional wisdom is that um, maternal mental health has to be the priority. And that means staying on the medications, which appear to be safe and effective. And by controlling the mom's mood and keeping her stable, it creates a better developmental environment for the fetus and leads to better health outcomes. And so they've kind of rolled out that corporate or drug company or big pharma conventional wisdom on the topic. And that sort of carried the day. But there are there are big holes in that, in that conventional wisdom. Um, but that's sort of what's gotten rolled out, which is what everybody sort of defaults to in the field without really drilling down and asking the scientific questions about what are the effects of these medications on the mom and baby? Um, are they safe? Are they effective? And do they lead to health benefits for the moms and the babies to try to sort of get away from the, the, what I call the corporate conventional wisdom or the big pharma conventional wisdom and actually ask the real questions. You, you're right. And, and I, I, I do suspect that's exactly what happens because, and I don't know if you know this about me, but I worked for several pharmaceutical companies and I've been involved with medical affairs groups and, you know, I guess the marketing teams. And usually what they'll do is, you know, they'll have, they'll talk to all their key opinion leaders and they'll say, you know, wh what are you hearing from your patients? You know, what are the things that they're worried about? You know, and I'm, this is a hypothetical, but I'm positive this has happened with the antidepressants. They'll, they'll say, you know, these young women who are taking these medications, they want to know, do I need to come off them, you know, when I'm going to get pregnant? And, you know, I'm worried, you know, does this have effect, an effect on my child? And so they'll, they'll identify this as a key piece of information that clinicians are going to be worried about. And because they're drug companies and because the sales of their products really depend on a favorable um, impression, you know, in the marketplace, they will do things like that. You know, when someone like you or someone else asks a question, Hey, what is the objective, um, you know, science saying about the effects on the brain of, of a fetus exposed to this? Um, they'll say, you know, this is just Adam, or this is just someone else that, you know, they're on their soapbox trying to stigmatize people. It's kind of like a bait and, bait and switch in a way. And it's like, if you can, and, and yeah, so if you can explain away these critics by saying, hey, there's some other agenda there and they're trying to say that it's, you know, that it, it's not important for their mental health, then the family doctors and the psychiatrists and, and all the people who taught me can feel really safe about prescribing these medications and really kind of pat themselves on the back and say, you know, at the end of the day, it's the mother's mental health, which is the, you know, the, the major priority. But I'm going to say this, I don't think that's true in all the cases. I think in a lot of cases, moms, if they knew what was going on, they would say, I'd be, I'd be willing to forgo this just for whatever risk there could be to the fetus. And, and so, but I, I think that nuance is really lost. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. The nuance gets lost, and it's a way of sort of ending the conversation or silencing critics. Um, is to say that when you start talking about this, that um, that instead of asking, if you ask the question, and I do ask the question, what are the effects of these chemicals on the developing fetal brain? So. SSRI antidepressants are the most commonly used ones. The selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So serotonin is, is a crucial cell signaling molecule, a crucial neurotransmitter, crucial molecule for the development of an embryo, the development of the of the brain, of the baby's brain. The serotonin system plays a crucial role in that. The SSRIs alter that system. So just thinking of it from the basics, keeping it real simple, you've got serotonin as a crucial system for the development of the baby's brain. You've got SSRIs that affect that system, so they're going to have a chemical effect on the development of the fetal brain. I mean, that's that, you know, stands. But when you start talking about these things, uh, people want to jump and say that, oh, now you're pill shaming or you're encouraging women who need these to come off of them and have horrible outcomes from withdrawal. It's like, no, that's not it at all. But that's a way of trying to sort of silence the conversation or silence critics. But that's not, you know, what's going on. And that's not what I do. I do this all day, every day in my office. I take care of lots of young pregnant women, pregnant women who are on, um, who are on medications. And I do this counseling every day. And it's important to do it with compassion, care, support the patient, but it's also important to be providing this information. So we need to sort of push past this canceling and stigmatization of that people asking these questions and say, you know, what are the effects of these uh, medications, these synthetic chemical compounds on moms and on babies? What has the reception been, I guess, within your profession of maternal fetal medicine, or, or maybe when you've spoken out more widely, um, and you've encountered maybe academics from psychiatry or other disciplines. How is what you're saying received by by these groups? Um, I think there's a default in a lot of, in the in the profession. There's a sort of default to what I would say is the corporate conventional wisdom or the big pharma conventional wisdom on this. That that sort of thing does happen, where people are just kind of repeating the the sort of company line on these things and um but i do think that people who know me know where i'm coming from and know that my interest is in uh protecting patients and the public providing good information and not mm -hmm. just to patients in the public but also to physicians physicians want to take good care of their patients and they want to also provide them with the proper information so it's important really to get this information out to um to physicians to patients and the public so i think among my colleagues you know they know this is not the only the only medication that I've dealt with or I deal with sure. in my career for the last decade or so, I've been pushing against back against a drug called McKenna. McKenna was a, a preterm birth drug, a synthetic hormone that we injected into pregnant women for the last 20 years. It didn't work. Uh, it didn't prevent preterm birth. Um, and it subsequently was pulled off the market uh, this past April uh, by the FDA after basically 20 years of injecting this ineffective drug into pregnant women. So I think those people who know me in the field know that uh, my goal is to um, – protect patients and the public and provide proper information. And um, I think I get support from that for the most part on this. That's great. I'm glad I didn't hear a story like, you know, people have been reporting me to the medical board because I know that's happened to psychiatrists when we've uh, kind of veered too far from the path. From the path. Um, so that's good. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. 
Um, I have had some some people try to call my uh, yeah. my hospital on a couple of different issues to report me for for being a troublemaker. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. <laughs> there it is, there it is. I knew it. I absolutely knew it was there. Yeah, because <laughs> these things happen, you know. And any any time you kind of step out of it, yeah, it happens. Okay. It did, yeah. No, there yeah. were a couple of those calls. Yeah. It did. It never went anywhere. Um, but yeah, no. I think the effort was made there to let me know that look, if you continue this way, we can threaten your livelihood. Um, and that's you know really, really, I'm laughing about it, but it's really scary that we've entered this sort of that we're we're in this where there's this threat that if you don't, uh, if you ask these questions, um, that you will have your livelihood threatened basically by asking good questions and trying to, um, you know, to stand up for patients in the public. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been on your Twitter. I know you talk about censorship and things like that out there and that's exactly what it is. You know, it's, 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 it's threats. And, and, you know, when you got, when these people called the hospital did, I mean, were these kind of, uh, uh, I guess, you know, I guess people in the community, or do you think these were other academics who were just, uh, just saying, oh, you know, this is, this is some really dangerous stuff coming, coming from Adam. <laughs> Yeah. I actually don't know the the, yeah. the person the, the the person at the hospital who told me that that they had been called said it was an anonymous call so I don't know uh oh you know who, who exactly it was that was calling in to report me uh for speaking out on behalf of the public on these issues but the uh, I I was I was reported my 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 kids got a big kick out of that I bet <laughs> their, dad, their dad getting in trouble you know and and the thing is the critics out there you know I say some I say some um you know, definitely some stuff that, uh, you know, on my Twitter where, where people really don't like it, you know, especially a lot of the stuff I say about the overdiagnosis of bipolar disorder. Um, it's, that's one of the major areas. And the criticism comes and then you say, you know, in, engage with me, come and talk to me, let, you know, share your points. They disappear, you know, so I'm not surprised at all that, you know, these complaints are anonymous. That just, yeah. yeah. So, but let's... um. This is a good time because I'm, I mean, I'm really curious about this. When I was at FDA, I knew there was a pregnancy registry going on for women on antidepressants. It was something I was tangentially involved in. So I had a little bit of um, coverage of this, this issue, but I know this is really your kind of forte. So walk us through um, the causal links that you've seen or, you know, that you've put together between uh, fetal exposure to antidepressants and possible uh, behavioral issues long term for the for the children. Sure, I, I don't mean to bounce around, and I'm going to get. Yeah. I'll, I just wanted to get back to quickly though the censorship uh, to just wrap up on that because yeah. I think this is a crucial thing that we have to keep hammering away on, which is that there's been this big push over the last several years about misinformation and disinformation, and I think that the public can really get fooled by this because it sounds so good. You've got these bo- these you know academic bodies or these think tanks that are trying to identify incorrect information for the public public in order to make sure that the public is getting correct information. So that sounds terrific. We want to make sure that the public gets correct information. And so the public is buying into this whole idea of importance of, you know, going after misinformation and disinformation. But what that is, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's, it, it's, that's designed to get the public, this whole focus on misinformation and disinformation is designed to get the public to accept censorship, to desire censorship, so that, uh, 
silence uh, so that uh, dissent will be silenced. That's basically what this amounts to. It's a way of getting the public to accept censorship, and then um, it, uh, dissenting voices can be silenced through these mechanisms so that, in fact, the public doesn't get the correct information on this. Uh, so I think the public needs to re re be wary. If you hear people parading about with the importance of fighting misinformation and disinformation, this is often just a guise of trying to get you to accept censorship, which typically censorship is what? It's a way of the powerful silencing the powerless. It's the way it throughout history, it's been the, the powerful, the bad guys, basically, who have been the censors trying to censor um, the, the powerless. And so people, the public needs to push back against that strongly and encourage dissenting voices trying to get proper information out there. Yeah, especially if they come with a sound argument, because, you know, yeah, I, like I get it. There, there can be dis misinformation out, out there. I mean, there can be people who are like, you know, selling supplements with, you know, inaccurate medical uh, claims and things like that. And we, we certainly don't want to mislead people in that way. But, you know, separating what is genuine, you know, a genuine challenge to something from that, I think is difficult for the public to, to understand and it's complicated, right? Because it involves research. But, you know, the, the other thing I want to say is, um, you know, when you're doing these censorship, you know, this, you know, getting rid of this misinformation, it really biases, you know, what information you allow out there towards the people who control the science. And the people who control the science are the people who are pharmaceutical companies and who have a lot of money and have these big kind of war chests uh, where they can hire people just like me is what, what I you know, used to do there and all these other professionals and medical writers to churn out um, favorable articles in uh, objective journals while ignoring negative ones, you know, no mandate to do that. And so it really skews things. And, and so it's, yeah, whoever controls the science, the, <laughs> the science, um, you know, controls the message of the day. But yeah, that's right. That's right. No, the medical consensus. I'm acutely aware of this because of McKenna. So um, the medical consensus for McKenna for the last 20 years, the medical consensus and what the and this was true across the board for physicians as well as the, the major um, professional medical associations like the American College of OBGYN and the American Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, which is like the American Psychiatric Association. These groups all said that the standard of care uh, was to um, use McKenna to prevent preterm birth and pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so I was arguing against that for the last, you know, whatever, decade or more. So you could say, on if you if you define misinformation as saying something that's against the the conventional wisdom or the standard of care, then I was spreading misinformation, saying I didn't think McKenna was effective, uh, and that actually, in fact, that that definition is what this 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 California law AB two hundred nine eight was defining misinformation as information that went against the medical standard of care. But we know that the medical standard of care or the conventional wisdom can often be wrong in medicine and science. So I'm glad my voice wasn't silenced on McKenna because it turned out I was right. The, yeah, the, withdrew the, it, it didn't right? it didn't work. It's withdrawn <laughs> because it didn't prevent preterm birth. The FDA withdrew it from the market. So I, I do think it's complicated, but in general, I, I think it's important for us to support dissenting voices and uh, and be wary of uh, of censorship. Personal, personal question here because you know I know I struggled with and I think a lot of people who have kind of seen the the dark side of pharma struggled with but the question is did you get vaccinated for covid when when it, when it came out right at the start <laughs> 
I don't, uh, I don't, uh, uh, discuss my personal health yeah. isn't that crazy that it's like asking you whether you know what's your religion or what do, what political party are you associated with it's so polarizing you know the yeah. the issue of vaccines yeah yeah i will tell you though yeah. that it, that it was rolled out and um it was yeah. rolled out essentially like bait like the corporate rollouts are for any of these things and this is true for the antidepressants this is true for other things and it's i'm gonna say you, you gave yourself away when you refused to answer because it, because it's a no i'm, just gonna, assume, <laughs> I'm gonna assume it's a no <laughs> it, yeah. It's a core. It's a corporate rollout, and on a yeah. corporate rollout, what you're going to have with a pharma rollout is the same thing. You're going to have them tell you that it's basically completely safe, that it's highly effective, mm-hmm. and that it's going to lead to significant health benefits across the board. That's how it's going to get rolled out, and then you're going to actually find out over time, like we did with the SSRIs, like we did with other antidepressants, that it's uh, not as safe as originally billed. That there are safety concerns. Concerns, that it's not as effective as it was originally billed, that there's a lack of effectiveness, and that it may not lead to the good health effects that uh, that were hoped for. But by the time a lot of that's discovered, pharma has already collected the profits from it, which is the, the goal. The, the, ph- the pharmaceutical industry, the drug companies, are their goal is to maximize profits and return to shareholders. And they're, they're trying, to, that's what they're trying to do. And so that's what they, they're able to do with these rollouts that then yeah. you end up getting people uh, caught up in uh, uh, with the initial rollout. If you didn't give yourself away with not answering, you, you gave yourself away with that answer just then as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I was in the same position. I, um, I mean, back then I got, you know, essentially I was forced to get it because I had to work in the hospital. I had a family to support, but that, that, that was kind of where I ended up. But David Healy, and I, I know he's kind of talked about this, I, I think he wasn't in, into it. And I think they really gave him a hard time, you know, I think, um, um, and, and really came for him. So yeah, th- I mean, censorship, this kind of forcing to comply, all of this stuff, it's, it's very bad, but, um, oh, the, the, the yeah. mandates, I can't yeah. say enough against the vaccine yeah. mandates. Um, and it particularly because it affects my patients and I, I really saw this firsthand, um, I took care of pregnant women who it was a new product. It's a synthetic chemical compound. It's a new mRNA technology, the vaccines. And they had big concerns with uh, what the impact would be. And uh, many of them felt forced. I mean, really forced coercive. These vaccine mandates were coercive uh, for my patients. They felt forced into being injected with a, a new pharmaceutical that there wasn't a track record on at the threat of losing their job. And it's just... It, it, it's outrageous to me that uh, that that many of us stood by and watched this. That, that that society basically allowed this to occur, where pregnant women were threatened with job loss, loss of their livelihood, if they didn't agree to to be injected with a, a a new vaccine with no with no track record their, their concerns were completely reasonable and many of them said things like they've heard that it affected their you know women's periods they had concerns about that but that was labeled misinformation for a while until we until we discovered that it did affect women's periods these women told me they were worried that it might show up in their breast milk that was considered misinformation that that, that, that the vaccine could show up in breast milk until it turns out that the vaccine does show 
kill off in breast milk. So my patients, I, I want the public to understand this. My patients were really suffering and struggling with this. And the policies that were in place were forcing pregnant women with legitimate concerns to be, to not have bodily autonomy, but to you, be forced I mean, into vaccination. You know what the craziest thing was? Like, um, how, you know, how they were able to use, um, I guess the marketing might and, you know, all of the PR to actually get people in their own lives to turn against them and to start kind of shaming them for not doing these things. Because, I mean, the vaccination status, you know, was such a, a hot issue then. I mean, there was just mass hysteria going on. And I, I think that was like the, the, the most impressive part of the whole thing, how they got people essentially uh, uninvited from Thanksgiving dinners and birthday parties and things like that. I mean, the pressure was unbelievable. Yeah. No, it, it was crazy, yeah. Joseph. And in my field, in my field, I see this firsthand, uh, this, this crazy disconnect, this hypocrisy firsthand because so many of my colleagues and, and, and there's so much discussion about the importance of a woman's right to make her own healthcare choices during pregnancy. And so many of my colleagues, you know, embrace this. A, a woman has a right to decide what, what her healthcare choices are going to be. She has bodily autonomy and, 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 and most and, and many, even the leading professional organizations support this. For example, the American College OBGYN, the American Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. But all of these folks, including these professional medical societies, when it came to the vaccine, they they completely walked away from that. And they said they really don't have a right to yeah. bodily autonomy or health care choices. And didn't it end up causing like higher rates of miscarriage and things like that? I, you know, I don't want to, you know, get it wrong. I, I remember hearing something like that, you know, that it did have real outcome, you know, real, real deficits for some women. Yeah, I think we're still trying to sort that yeah. out. When I, I read the science on this, I, I read the literature on yeah. this, and I'm not sure um, about how that's going to sort out, both okay. in terms of COVID and in terms of the vaccine. I think the story is still yet to be written on that. I do know that <clears throat> when COVID initially came out, there were a lot of stories and a lot of science about this dramatic increase from COVID in stillbirths, but we really didn't see that, and the data doesn't reflect that. There mm -hmm. was not this jump up in stillbirth from COVID during the, uh, during the, during the pandemic. There were some cases, some case reports, but I know there was a lot of incorrect information about that that had patients worried, but the data doesn't support that. And I think trying to tease out what the effect of vaccination was, um, as well as the effect of the virus is still sort of to be determined. Interesting. Okay. I was going to I was going to get back to the SSRI. Let's segue back. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I try to make this very simple. Uh, I try to make this very simple for patients. And so, what I tell people when I lecture on this is the phrase I like to use is medications are chemicals and chemicals have consequences. Chemicals have consequences for the mom, chemicals have consequences for the developing fetus. <clears throat> I, I went into this a little bit earlier, but serotonin is a crucial neurotransmitter, crucial cell signaling molecule. It helps to take uh, to form the baby the embryo the fetus to ba basically if in 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 in, for in the formation in particular the development of the baby's brain so you probably know this better than i do as a psychiatrist but there's like 100 billion neurons or something or 100 trillion connections all that wiring has to go on during the in utero period and serotonin and other neurotransmitters play a crucial role in that. We know the SSRIs and other antidepressants freely cross over when a mom takes it 
it goes into her, it crosses the placenta, yeah. it goes into the developing baby, it goes into the developing baby throughout the system, in particular the baby's brain. So there are going to be brain effects, there's going to be baby effects on this. When we look at the research and say, well, what is the research showing on this? If you start with the basic science, so number one, common sense tells you that because serotonin is an important um, cell signaling molecule neurotransmitter because the SSRIs and other antidepressants interfere with that, that you'll expect to see uh, um, developmental issues. Then you look at the animal data. The animal data does show that. The animal data again and again and again on mouse, rat, rabbit studies shows effects from the antidepressants, uh, in particular the SSRIs, because those are the ones that are most commonly used, can shows the effects of those um, in, in pregnancy. And then when you look at the human data, you see this as well. So what are we seeing? What do the studies show? So it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag because human studies are challenging, um, doing epidemiology, trying to figure out who's taking the medication, who stopped, etc. So it's a little bit mixed, but it looks, from my reading of the literature, to show increased rates of miscarriage. We see that. Increased rates of birth defects. We see that. And then uh, further along in the pregnancy, uh, increased rates of preterm birth. That's fairly well established, even for the people who doubt effects in pregnancy. Most people do say, look, you look at the literature, it's causing increased rates of preterm birth. Uh, it, it looks like it causes increased rates of low birth weight um, or growth, what we call growth restriction, fetal growth restriction, so low birth weight in the baby. And then it has effects on mom. It looks like it increases uh, the diseases, the hypertensive diseases of pregnancy, like preeclampsia, uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension, gestational hypertension. It looks like it affects, it, it increases those rates. It, it appears to increase, it does increase postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, this is something that the FDA just added to the label, I believe it was in August of, uh, of 2023, uh, just uh, last month. Sort of, they did it, I don't want to say secretly, but sort of, they just changed the label to add this warning about uh, increased rates of postpartum hemorrhage. This is something that the UK has been warning about now for, for a while. Serotonin has an important role in platelet function. Platelets are important for... Um, for clotting, thank you, for not mm -hmm. bleeding at the time of, of delivery, um, the SSRIs interfere with that serotonin. We see increased rates of bleeding in other areas like post-operative areas in, post in surgery, you know, not having to do with OB. We see it in pregnancy. Now there's a warning about that. And then the, the next big thing, the biggest thing that we see, if you can point to and say, well, where do you see a really huge difference between the SSRI exposed babies and the non? It's with this condition called poor neonatal adaptation or newborn behavioral syndrome or neonatal withdrawal syndrome. People come up with a bunch of different terms for it. When babies are born and they've been exposed to SSRI antidepressants, they will have a high, far higher likelihood of poor neonatal adaptation or um, newborn withdrawal syndrome. That means jitteriness, um, crying, uh, odd uh, motor movements, uh, sometimes difficulty feeding, in worst cases seizures, difficulty breathing. 
the rates of that depends on how you define it, but are as high as like 85% in babies that are exposed to SSRIs. Now, people are going to hear me say that and say, where is he coming up with that number? That's actually in up-to-date. Um, for the people who were watching the podcast who don't know, up-to-date's an online textbook, basically. It's become somewhat of a standard because so many people use it. But in their review on this, they quote that number. It really depends on how you define the syndrome, but it can be very high rates of seeing that. So we see these newborn, newborn behavioral effects right off the bat. And then I'll just wrap this up by saying, and then the big question, the big $68,000 or $64,000 question is what are the long-term effects of this? And um, the studies are showing a, a longer-term effects with this, with questions about uh, development of the brain. So there have been studies showing increased rates of autism, studies showing increased rates of ADHD, studies showing effects on motor development, studies showing effects on language development, studies showing higher rates of um, gastrointestinal disorders. The serotonin system plays a crucial role in the brain, but it also plays a crucial role in the formation of the gastrointestinal tract in the gut. And um, babies that were exposed in utero, children that were exposed in utero do appear to have higher rates of, of GI issues. Um, and then the other is just a big unknown about what other long-term effects are going to be there from exposure to these medications uh, throughout fetal development. So that was like a mouthful. There's so many things I want to talk to you about <laughs> in there. I guess the first question would be, if a woman comes to you and she's on an antidepressant um, and she goes, what are the risks? Do you say, you know, the risk is that you're more likely to have a child who's going to have autism or behavioral problems? So the, the way the counseling goes, you're asking a good question, but the way the counseling goes is it doesn't usually jump to that. What I do before I go into any counseling at all is find out where the patient's at, how they're doing, and you know what their mental health history is, uh, how long they've been on medication for, what's going on with them, how they're doing, how they're feeling. Um, and then I'll usually go into the counseling on medication exposure in general. And this applies to not just antidepressants, but this applies to seizure drugs for patients with epilepsy, uh, hypertensive medications for patients with high blood pressure. And that counseling is that in general, the approach in medicine, in, in obstetrics is, we try to use the least amount of medication at the lowest doses for the shortest periods of time while still taking care of the mom. So both parts of that equation are important. We don't just ignore medical issues in pregnancy because moms are pregnant. We don't tell, for example, patients having lots of seizures, you just have to keep seizing during your pregnancy throughout the pregnancy because sure. you're pregnant, so you don't want to treat you. So we do use medications in pregnancy, but the idea is lowest doses, smallest number of drugs, shortest period of time while still taking care of the mom. So I do talk to patients about that. And then I do tell them that we don't, we, 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 we don't want them. We don't just tell them, look, you just have to suffer with whatnot. And then I do go into the fact that, but med but then I tell them medications are chemicals and any chemical goes into the mom, it goes into the baby and there can be chemical effects. And that's when I go into some of these effects with the mom, what some of the studies have shown. Again, adjusting it and doing it with, um, with compassion, with care and with respect to their mental health history and what's going on with them so that you can try to, to treat each patient individually. Interesting. To me, and I don't know how this sits with you is 
to me, this would be one of the most important risks that a young woman would would need to know about um, yeah. taking this medication because um, right, it's frightening, you know, you know, and, uh, because we're not talking about our oh, low birth weight, something like that that goes away, or they'll have withdrawal when when they come out. It's more of a question of your child may be dealing with the consequences of a decision that you've made now for the rest of their life. How is this not one of the most important things or probably the most important thing that we, that we're telling women about young women, women of childbearing potential, you know, 13 and up, um, about these drugs. Why is that not the most important thing we're telling them? You're hitting the nail on the head here. You're hitting the nail on the head, which is this isn't, the, the right time for this discussion really isn't when I'm seeing them. I went no. into how I discussed that briefly uh, in my office, but that's really not the time to do it. I'm typically seeing women at 12 weeks. That's when we do the nuchal translucency evaluation. Of the because baby. it's but, like, why would you, because it's probably just going to scare them at that point. And by, you know, eight weeks, the neural tube is closed. There's a lot of neurological developments already passed. I mean, yeah. I, you don't want to drop that on them. I mean, it may be true and, and maybe it should be said eventually, uh, but I mean, that's, that's a hell of a thing to drop on someone when they haven't been told about it beforehand. Yeah. So this is a conversation that needs to be held with women that, that women of childbearing age need to understand before they're started on the medications. And I know it may seem far off if a woman is going through a challenging time, a difficult time, um, mental health wise in college or whatnot, uh, to think, well, we're going to start talking about these pregnancy effects. It, but, but it really does have to be a, a consideration because many of the patients I take care of were started on their antidepressants years ago and haven't been able to come off of them or haven't uh, have tried, have had withdrawal or whatnot, have just been unable to come off. So I think it is a very important conversation that really doesn't belong during the pregnancy time period as much as for women of childbearing age, as, as you were saying. And it's, it's a conversation we need to have with them. And it's also something that needs to be known in society. It's just as, as general knowledge that like women getting started on these may have difficulty stopping them. And then that's going to become an issue when they do become pregnant, that it's going to have these, these fetal effects, uh, that, that basically the baby is going to be developing in the setting of being exposed to these medications. So you're absolutely right. And I, and I make that point all the time. This is a discussion that really needs to be with women of childbearing age when, they, when they're on these or when they start them. Why isn't this a boxed warning or maybe at least a warning and precaution? Um, and for the listeners out there, the boxed warning and the warning and precautions where you put the most important risks of the drug, usually risks that anyone prescribing them would want to talk to a patient about prior to initiation, um, the most important clinical information. Why hasn't this risen to the level of a, a warning and precaution for the antidepressant drug class from, from your perspective? You know, getting that real regulatory recognition I think it does, Yosef. I think it does, and I'm hoping to. Um, to I'm hoping the FDA will move in that direction uh, in the uh, in the coming in the coming months and years. Um, and I, yeah, I hope to. Uh, I hope to um, petition them to do that because I think really there's enough evidence now that's accumulated that the time has come, or maybe even it's past time now, uh, to put that in a black box warning uh, on the label that there are fetal effects of these medications. Uh, 
in particular um, fetal uh, effects on the developing fetal brain. And um, hopefully we're going to get into that now, but there's been now 10 MRI studies, by my count, 10 MRI studies that have looked at uh, fetuses, uh, babies exposed to SSRIs during pregnancy versus unexposed, including unexposed but depressed, and we're seeing MRI changes in the um, in the exposed children. A big study just came out in JAMA over the uh, over the summer, um, JAMA Psychiatry, showing that there's decreased gray matter, uh, decreased gray matter in seven-year-olds and 15-year-olds that were exposed to SSRIs in utero. So that's following up these children exposed in utero at age seven with MRI and age 15 and still seeing brain effects uh, from these medications. Uh, and, and gray matter is important. You can tell me better than I can tell you as an obstetrician that gray matter is really important. A 10% reduction in your gray matter is con concerning. Um, and, 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 and there's another paper that I just, um, I tweeted about recently looking at the effect of SSRIs in comparison to other drugs like nicotine, alcohol, cocaine, uh, opioids and showed actually that the SSRIs appeared to have the um, the, the biggest impact on uh, on 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 their outcome, which was looking at at, at uh, babies' brains with functional MRI. Yeah, so you know anyone who kind of googles this, and I did a little bit of googling um, in preparation for this, but you know you search you know autism and SSRIs and whether you're in PubMed or Google and you just come straight to American Journal of Psychiatry articles that essentially, you know, throw doubt over the, over the, over these studies in humans, they say things like, you know, the controls aren't perfect. There's different levels of depression. You know, the genetic factors of depression maybe may predispose people to more autism. And, um, I don't know, are those the main, because those were the main criticisms that I read about from from the proponents of saying that, hey, this is, you know, maybe not a real big deal. Is that the main thing that they say with these more long-term epidemiological studies from your perspective? Or are there other main criticisms that people bring out against, you know, that that evidence that you were just kind of talking to me about? Yeah, the main criticism that comes out is the one you're describing, which is called um, confounding by indication. And uh, what that means, th there has never been a randomized controlled trial done. There's no randomized controlled trial. Randomized controlled trial, as you know, you take a... 2,000 women with depression, you randomize 1,000 of them to take the SSRIs during their pregnancy, the other 1,000 get randomized not to be on the SSRIs, and then with that randomization, you see what the outcomes are. That's never been done, that people don't think that's ethical to do. So what you end up with is you end up with observational studies of women who decide to stay on their SSRIs versus women who come off or aren't on SSRIs, and then you look at what the effects are. What keeps happening is that um, various people in the field, various key opinion leaders, many of whom are paid by the pharmaceutical industry, by pharma, make the argument that any study showing that the antidepressants have harmful effects is confounded by indication, meaning the women that stayed on the antidepressants were different than the women that came off of them, maybe more severe depression, maybe something else, and that that's why they had the poor outcome, and that it's not a result of a direct chemical effect. The problem or the big flaw in that argument that they're making though, 
what they're saying is not unreasonable epidemiologically or from a you know an, an epidemiology 101 course but the big flaw in their argument is that the that the complications we're finding are exactly reflected by what we would expect to see from a chemical effect there's a these are chemicals they're going into the developing baby and they are having chemical effects and we see them in animal studies and when you're seeing chemical effects in animal studies and the animals aren't depressed. It's not. It's just a direct chemical effect. And then you're seeing the same chemical effect in the human studies. You can assume a chemical effect and not confounding by indication. So that whole confounding by indication argument I see as a red herring, and I see it similar to what was done by industry or pharma in other areas. Or in, in the case of big tobacco, they used to try to say that doubt was their product. To when when it started coming out, I'm, that I'm glad you might, said that because I, I that's exactly what it made me think about, and it's exactly in other areas of 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 pharma where you can have. Um, and and honestly, I think most of the the cover for drug side effect problems come from um, epidemiological studies. I think they're the, they are the best places to kind of confuse people. This is my perspective. They're confusing. They involve statistics. There's always going to be confounding factors in there. Things that mean that you know the data is not clear so i feel like industry love it academics love it anyone who has an uh, you know something that they want to hide they can always say oh well you know we can't really trust this study because of x y and z and then they kind of say it's like oh you know you know maybe one day we'll have a better study that's longer you know but it's just not practical um and i i love that you brought up the animal studies because that's where I was going to take you and you kind of anticipated it. Um, with, with an animal study, you don't need to, I mean, you can do essentially a randomized controlled trial with that. You can take a group of healthy mice. You could just drug one section of them. You know, they, they, they don't live that long. You know, they re reproduce very, very quickly. And then you can look at them and you can fully control for the differences between the two groups. They are. And um, so tell us, because it's to, to me, when I've looked at this data before, the animal studies are the most compelling piece of that's holding all of this together. You know, when you look at the human epidemiological stuff, when you look at the theoretical ways that interfering with serotonin neurotransmission might affect the uh, maturation of the brain, you know, in the baby, all of that stuff makes sense. But when you see it in animals, in these controlled groups, and, and you know, we use dogs, we use mice, we use all these things because... Um, I know it seems like they're very different from humans, but this is the standard in pharma. We frequently use these these animals to anticipate problems in humans. Uh, it's very accepted. So, so talk to us about what are the neuro, I guess the the behavioral findings in the in the rats from these experiments. So they do a variety, and there's so much animal data on this now. I mean, there's so many animal studies on this, looking at exposure during development, and then outcomes like how they behave in a reproductive manner, how they do um, uh, maze testing, how they like appear to have fear, like these various um, these various. Uh, animal animal study tests. Uh, the, these are the ones that are just coming to my mind. Um, the, you know how they do in performance of, of of maze testing. How they get through a maze, or how they whether they freeze when they're put in water, like drowning things is one that's just popping into my head. Or what they're doing reproductively. Um, 
and as well as looking at things like whether or not there's increased rates of pregnancy loss and things like that. And then you do see changes. You absolutely see change differences in the groups. The group getting treated with the SSRIs during development, whether it's rats, mice, rabbits, behaves differently. We're seeing behavioral differences in that group versus the untreated group again and again and again. Can you just, just, just describe them? You know, I, I don't know if it, like the... Um you know, for some people who may not know what a maze test is and things like that and may not know, yeah, what are some of the things that they see in, in the behavior of the rats when they observe them? Yeah, it's been, I, I, I mean, I'm trying to, 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 to dig into my memory and remember the exact yeah. details of, of, of the studies, but I think it's like when they look at length of time getting through the maze or number of times like getting confused in the maze or their, um, or their, the, the fear one is the one I'm remembering. There's something about the fear response that they're looking for, um, as well mm-hmm. as things like how often they look to mate. I keep coming back to mating, but that's one of the parameters that they look for, like how often they appear to be engaged in mating. And there's a variety of these behavioral things. But the other thing that they do is that they actually can look into the brains and they can find brain changes. They can actually then sacrifice the animals and look for this. So we're able to see that the chemicals actually have chemical effects, you know, on the babies, on the, um, uh, on the developing brain. And you know what the pharma people say when you bring up, you know, the, this, you know the the data from the evidence in rats, right? They, They'll they say go, it's, they're not humans. They're not humans, exactly. They say yeah. they're, they're not humans, and you have to go and you have to look at the human data. So it's they kind of just deflect, and then they go, "Well, you know, in the human data, the controls weren't perfect, even though it's completely unrealistic to ever do a study like that in humans. It's like a game, you know. It is like big tobacco." Right. So getting back to that big tobacco point, big tobacco, one of the documents that was found during the litigation was someone making, saying something like doubt is our product, that we don't have to convince people that the, that, 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 that cigarettes are safe, but we have to cast doubt on all the studies. And you can cast doubt on scientific research until the cows come home, especially with human data where there's no randomized controlled trial. But just stepping back and making it real simple, I try to tell people when I lecture on this, it's like, again, and I've said this now a few times, but serotonin is a crucial developmental hormone. These chemicals, the SSRIs and other antidepressants interfere with that with the way that system functions. And because that's a crucial system for development of the baby, there are going to be effects. Most people get that. And in fact, most basic common sense, like my patients say that to me a lot in the office. They'll say, well, there must be some effect, right? I mean, it's having an effect. How does it have effect on the, we're telling, we're telling women, we're telling people in our society, this crazy story that doesn't make any sense. If the woman comes in, and she's not pregnant, you'll tell her, look, you've got some kind of a brain chemical problem that's making you depressed, something with your brain chemistry, low serotonin. That's what was told for years. And, you know, we, we, we know that's not accurate, but that's what the people were being told. And that these powerful drugs will go into your brain and correct this brain chemistry. It corrects, it has this powerful effect on your brain. So you're describing to the woman this chemical with a powerful effect in the brain. And then if the next thing she does is ask you, but when it goes into my baby's brain, is there any effect? You say, no, 
there's just no effect, absolutely no effect in the baby's brain. Like, how is that possible? How is that explanation even possible? I don't mean to laugh at because it's horrible no. that, that we're telling women this, but it doesn't make any sense at all. No, it, that I mean, makes we, no sense. You know, but it's something that they hear repeatedly, right? You know, hear from one doctor, oh, it's mostly safe than another one. And, and it really goes to show just how powerful, um, I think, marketing can be, you know, and uh, kind of influence campaigns and making sure that people, you know, see your product in favorable ways and that these things are um, ex- explained away. I tell you what, the, the drug companies, they know what they're doing. I've been in there. They, I mean, they are, the people are highly paid and, and focused, you know, and you talk about like, you know, doubt is our product. You know, we, we just need to sow doubt about this you can really like sow some doubt, especially when you package it with another story. And and in many cases, the story is that there's people out there who are pill shaming depressed women and, and, and telling them that they can't be on antidepressants as if this was something that everyone had been experiencing, that there's a group of, you know, people out there and this is a really, really common experience because, you know, this is, and I'm not saying this never happens, but the way they talk about it is as if it's just like this this campaign of, of people following women around, you know, outside these, these pregnancy centers saying, don't take meds. And, you know, they do the same thing with, um, with just psychiatric drugs in general. Whenever you bring up any concerns about, hey, maybe we shouldn't be giving them to children because they seem to increase the risk of suicidal behavior in that population. People will say the same thing. You know, they'll say, you're trying to stigmatize sick people away from getting their medications as if it's, again, as if it's like there's this big group of people out there who are doing this and yeah, it does happen, but it's not in the way that they make it seem. They really turn it into this boogeyman, this boogeyman in society that's out there. And it's, and I think that's how people buy it. You know, they eat it hook, line and sink it because you hear that enough. And then you're just like, I guess that, that just is what it is. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's how they sort of distract or deflect. So when you're, when I'm trying to answer that important first question I was mentioning, that patients are asking, what are the effect of the SSRI antidepressants? What are the effect of these synthetic chemical compounds on my developing baby? When you're trying to answer that question, people will try to deflect away from that or distract from that and, and say that women should not be shamed in having this. And, 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 and it is true. Women him? should not be yeah. shamed. I support yeah. my patients. If yeah. my patient after the counseling and whatnot, if she decides to stay on the medication she's been on for 10 years, I support her and we work with her. I continue to see her and I support her through her pregnancy. She's my patient. She's my neighbor. She's the person that I'm going to provide compassionate care for. There's no one pill shaming. But if she asks me like, what do you think the effects of these are on the developing baby, I need to answer that question as a physician. And I can't just give her some answer about pill shaming. I, that doesn't, that, that's not, you know, what we should be doing. But that's essentially what is used to take people's eye off the ball on this and, and, and make it so that it's not so understandable. When people think about this for, you know, five minutes talking to me, they're like, yeah, you know, it makes a lot of sense. If these chemicals are going into the mom, they're going into the baby, they affect these crucial systems, it's going to have some effect. People understand that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've, I've sent out some tweets about like uh, almost medical education and um, psychiatric education, taking people away from intuitive things that they would know, you know, after thinking about it for five minutes. And then just confusing them, um, and 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 then and they come out more confused because they've had to kind of trick themselves into believing this other convoluted thing. Where 
oh my God, like the epidemiology is, it's not really clear and this confounding by indication and, you know, they just end up like kind of lost in there and it's, it's, it's by design. So uh, yeah, it, it is, it is very intuitive for a lot of people. So yeah, I'm going to, yeah, it, yeah. it gets to a point I just wanted to make here. Cause I think yeah. it's really important. It's, it's all, you know, what you're doing, what I'm trying to do. It's all about trying to get accurate information out to the public. And we really, in our society, people need to recognize that we've really got a society with failed information systems and failed regulation systems. And it's really uh, a, a huge problem. The way it should work in society is, excuse me, you've got drug companies who are trying to sell a product and you've got the public and you've got all of these organizations that are working on behalf of patients and the public. And those organizations would be, for example, regulatory bodies like the FDA and the CDC. They would be professional medical societies like the American Psychiatric Association, the American College of OBGYN. They would be your, your academic medical centers and your universities, Harvard, John Hopkins, etc. And they'd be your media. They would be your, um, your, your reporters, your health reporters. So you would have here, you'd have patients here, you'd have the drug companies, but between them, you'd have this society would have all of these structures working on behalf of protecting patients and the public. That's how it should be working. But what's actually occurring is that all of these structures are being funded essentially by big pharma, by the pharmaceutical industries. So what it ends up is that these structures, FDA, CDC, academic medical centers, your professional medical societies are essentially to some extent, not 100%, but to some extent working as branches of the pharmaceutical industry to increase profits and sales for the drug companies i think that you know that's the part of it that i think a lot of people don't realize unless you've been on the inside because what you said just then people will go adam's crazy you know he's he's really wearing a tin hat you know and he's just he's he's lost it but you know i i, I was at the fda i they get half of their funding through padufa it means they simply just focus on nda drug review and ind review there's a little a little effort on um, on safety issues, and they go to all the same conferences as pharma and ingest the same skewed medical research, and so yeah, funded by pharma, fifty percent. Then you go to academia and you go, okay, who rises to the top in academic centers? Well, it's the people who do clinical trial research because that generates the most publications, it generates the most money for the institutions, and so frequently the people that rise to the top in academia where the doctors are trained massively funded by industry, you know, really, really drug, drug friendly. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and so on and, and, and so forth. And I, I, I think it's like, unless you've been to these places and you've kind of seen it happen and, you know, there's these, these things going on, you really do think that these groups are independent and it's, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it took me a long time to kind of see all of that, but once I once I saw it, it's 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 like you take the red pill in the Matrix and you go, oh my god! It, and there's something you have to admire about the drug companies. You just go, this is incredible. I mean, this is a amazing story of uh, of influence that that's that's playing out. 
Yeah, I think you're raising a really good point, though, and I really appreciate you bringing it up, which is that it's not a conspiracy theory. So when people think of this, they think conspiracy theories that it's these people huddled in a dark room, pharma and FDA, and they're all like coming up with these things of um, in a conspiracy fashion. It's not like that. It's just how things work when the money flows in a certain way. And the way the money flows in our society is by makers of products. In this case, it's it's the drug company. They're making a drug. So it's the drug maker, if you think about it. So you've got people who are in favor of drug use, and those are the far, big pharma, the drug companies, and then you've got critics of that. But the people in favor of drug use pharma, they're making the product, which they can, are then going to get sales from and profits, which they can then use to influence the system by supporting or paying or PADUFA for the FDA or paying key opinion leaders, funding research, uh, funding commercials or advertisements in, in journals, etc. And so then th- there becomes this possibility positive cycle where then that all helps to increase sales, which increase profits, which then gets poured back into the system. Now, you might be thinking, Joseph, or the, anyone listening to this podcast might be thinking, but why don't the forces like against that, against the use of a drug, why don't they create their own system? But they can't because there's no profit to be made in people not taking a medication. So you yeah. don't get that. You don't, you don't get any push on that side of the equation all of the push comes from the sale of the product and so you end up with this inexorable push in our society towards over medicalization over pharmaceuticalization and it's not a conspiracy it's just how it works because that's where the money is to be made and that's and that's how it happens yeah I think that's that's really well said. And I think uh, some of the viewers after hearing that, they're going to go, I mean, of course it makes sense. Um, you know, one of the craziest ones that, that was hard for me to wrap my head around, and I'm sure you've heard of this before, but in, in psychiatry, we have groups like NAMI and Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. These are patient-led led groups and, you know, they <laughs> The pharmaceutical industry funds these groups and and there's nothing evil about it when you think about it. It's like, okay, these are groups that are advocating for their mental illness. You know, of course, that's nice. The drug company will give them money, but it, it, it ends up, I mean, it it's kind of just like this disease awareness campaign. You know, again, it's part of the funnel. It's like, if you can get these groups who are really advocating for more recognition of their condition and more support socially and politically, you can really kind of get a message out there, which is just like depression is undertreated. Depression is stigmatized. And, and people start to hear this on the news. They hear it from politicians. And then the doctors in the clinics, they go, oh my God, depression's really underrecognized. I guess I better start really treating it. And it's, it's, it's just, it's an intricate web of influence, which is so, I mean, I, I'm just in awe, in awe of it. Yeah, it's yeah. an and that's that's really well said. That's really well said. It's an intricate uh, you know web of influence is what happens. And um, and again, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just naturally what develops as the money as the money flows that way. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with everybody getting that message. What people need to keep in mind, a crucial thing people need to keep in mind, I think, to try to understand how this works is like when you take a an issue like antidepressants in pregnancy or just antidepressants in general, you want to think like, what would I believe if I were a drug company executive? If I were a drug company executive, like what would I want 
the public to believe about it. And that would be things like that it's undertreated, that it's under-recognized, that they're safe, that they're highly effective, that they're correcting a chemical imbalance, that they can be used for decades. Like all of these things is what you'd believe as a drug company executive or what you'd want the public to believe because that's what's going to increase sales and profits. But what's the likelihood that the model that's going to increase sales and profits the most and what the drug company executive wants you to believe, what's the likelihood that that's actually what's scientifically accurate and what's best for patients and the public? It's like zero. What's yeah. good, what's best for profits is not going to be best for typically for the public. Those, those two things generally aren't going to, to, to align. So you got to think of those as two separate goals. So whenever you're thinking like, what does the drug industry want me to believe that's going to take them towards max profit out here? That's probably not what's going to be actually the truth or what's going to be best for, for the public good. And so patients need to be, the public needs to be aware of that. If you're hearing messages that sound like they're great for sales and profits of the drug, it's probably not, not accurate and not what's best for the public. Yeah. That's, it's so, it, that's so well said. Yeah. Yeah. The, the information that would lead to the most discriminating use for physicians to really help patients is completely counter to a commercial and a marketing <laughs> agenda for a company. There you go. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. So I'm going to drag you into another kind of sacred cow, you know, forgive me because, uh, you know, I will try and make you uncomfortable, but I, um, I'm very interested in PSSD. You know, it's another part of the antidepressant story, which I've been, interested in, in I've interviewed people who have told me that they've questioned their sexuality after de developing PSSD because they've been intimate, intimate with women. They found that it's completely gone away. And then they've wondered if they were gay, essentially. Um, I've also, you know, th these drugs, probably the most prominent effect they have much more than an antidepressant effect and much more consistently is one of uh, genital anesthesia uh, is one of uh, sexual dysfunction, really, when you when you're on it. And I can't help but notice that there is an increase in um, people identifying as transgender with people identifying as being asexual. Some of this surely is due to broader acceptance in, in, in society and this being really, you know, a more accepting place to come out uh, with those things. But part of me does wonder if the increasing use of antidepressants, whether in ex for children who were exposed in utero, in utero, but also those who are maybe taking those medications currently and on them, is affecting their sexual development there and causing uh, them to question uh, their gender identity, sexuality, and things like that. And so I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on this and uh, maybe link it into anything that you know that you recall about changes in sexual behavior in the animal studies or in any of the human epi studies that that you've seen yeah i think it's a, it's a good question and i'm getting asked this much more than i used to be i've been talking or lecturing about this for years but much more recently people are asking me about whether or not 
I think that this is has uh, has to do with sort of the the the, the more issues about uh, gender identity and that sort of thing. I'm getting asked that much more. Um, how we are as human beings, sexually or behaviorally, or how we behave, has a lot to do with our brain chemistry and our brain wiring. I mean, that has a huge, profound impact. And so, given the, I don't want to be fear mongering here, and I and I think it's an area that needs to be studied. I don't think there's an answer right now. But given the fact that um, serotonin plays such a crucial role and the rest of the neurotransmitters do in the development of the brain and behavior, could it have some impact? I think certainly it could have some impact. Just thinking about it sort of at a theoretical level, uh, it would be something that would need to be, uh, need to be, need to be studied, certainly. When you brought, when you brought up um, the, the sexual dysfunction with it, it made me think that David Healy, uh, uh, you, who you mentioned earlier, he often says that the SSRI and other antidepressants should really be considered as like first and foremost uh, sexual dysfunction or sexual inhibitors, that that's really the class of drug that they are because uh, that's their prominent effect and not antidepressant really. The prominent effect of these are, are sexual dysfunction. Yeah, because it's, like it's like a media within a few days and it's 50, I think it's 50 to 80% of people report sexual dysfunction. And uh, and that's different from the anxiolytic effect of the drugs, or the you know the 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 antidepressant effect, if you want to call that, which is very mild. If you've seen Irving Kirsch's uh, work on you know the placebo effect and things like that, so he makes sure. a good point. Yeah, yeah, he and he said that before that you know it's got yeah. like a primary, it's a primary actually sexual uh, sexual effect um, more so than an antidepressant effect, and that that's how they, they should be considered. Um, so for sure, it, there's sexual effects to these uh, in adults. And then if you ask the question, well, we know that they can affect sex and sexuality in adults. If we expose developing babies to it, could it possibly affect those systems? I don't see why not. I, I don't know if we actually have that data. I mean, it, 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 we don't have that data. That's, be, that's something that can be studied or investigated, um, you know, in humans. In the animals, I'm trying to go back and remember. I know I've read so many of these studies. I'm trying to, to, to tease out the actual ones. But they do look at copulatory behavior, like mounting in, uh, mm -hmm. in several oh, of yeah. these studies. There's a huge wealth of information. Anybody that wants to drill down on this – and at one point, I, when I my talk on this, I, I included a few slides of rats and mice and rabbits protesting and saying, "Stop experimenting on us because we know that these are having harmful behavioral effects." I, I put that in as a joke, but to to just make the point that we know that so many of these studies have been done, and we can see if you expose developing rats, rabbits, mice to these medications, you will get changes in behavior. You will get the effects from these. Like we don't need. To necessarily keep doing it. We know it's there. We know that these affect, and it's just common sense that it would affect. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but to, mm -hmm. to get back to your question, could there be an impact there? Yes, and that's another, Some leads me to segue into something else, which is that I think the media has really failed uh, and again, the media is here and should be working on behalf of patients and the public, but I think they've really failed to bring attention to this issue because um, it depends on which studies you look at, but 
anywhere between 5 and 10% of pregnant women are taking these. And they've been taking them, the SSRIs, that is, since Prozac was launched in 87, I believe. So we're looking at a long time, lots of exposure to this, and there's very little coverage on this aspect of it, what effect it might have, almost no coverage in this in the media. Mm-hmm. This past study that came out in JAMA showing age 7 and age 15 MRIs from exposed children that were exposed in utero showing significant reductions in gray matter got basically no media coverage. It just, it's astounding to me uh, that the media has really failed the public here um, in terms of informing the public uh, on this, you know, important issue. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm, I am interested in, in also in why that study got, got no coverage, but, but I guess at the same time, I'm aware of it because if if that was a study that said, hey, nothing to see here, guys, you know, this is all like a big hoax, you better believe the marketing department at some of these uh, at some of these groups are sending it out to their publicists and PR people in the media and saying, hey, you really need to run this story. Because you're right, there is no financial agenda to really kind of blast this information out there. So it just, it kind of, you know, it sits in these academic journals that no one reads, I guess, apart from you. Yeah. No, what, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. There's no financial agenda, and again, it's not a um, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just how it works because of how the money flows. And I just want to touch on that. Um, am I running out of time with you? No, <laughs> no we are, we are really good. Okay, I just want to touch on that again because. If you think about this topic more broadly, antidepressants in pregnancy, you can understand why they've been around and why they're being used because to some extent, they work. It works for everybody, even though the drug may not actually work, at least as far as the randomized controlled trials go, um, and that gets to Irving Kirsch's work and others, how effective they are, but it works in a different way. For the mom... Many of the moms will tell you they feel better now. Could that be a placebo effect? Could that be other effect? It could be, but the moms feel better on that. Uh, they're going to their doctor, and the doctor's able to give them something that makes them feel better, it has, a, has an answer to their problem. When they go to see their OB, if the OB is able to tell them, look, these are safe in pregnancy, that, that works because it's a quick visit. Um, not that doctors want to give the best information they can to their patients, but it's a challenge in the clinical setting to have a conversation about the potential impacts of antidepressants on the developing fetal brain or the developing baby is a lengthy conversation, and that's challenging. And it's more, it's 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 much easier just to be able to. Um, support the woman and say these are safe and 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 move forward so it, it works in that respect and then in the broader picture by having these sales and having a lot of women of childbearing age on these and having no concerns about their use in pregnancy it keeps women of childbearing age on these it works for the profits for the drug companies which they're then able to use to fund the American Psychiatric Association, the American College of OBGYN, um, FDA, whatnot. It's working for everybody if you think about it this way. Apart from the woman who has to raise the child with autism and potential relational and sexual problems, if that is something that they end up finding. Um, 
So this yeah. is exactly right. So I was going to yeah. get to that. I'm not saying yeah. it works for everybody, <laughs> yeah. but who it's not working for, yeah. right, is the developing fetus. But this isn't going to show up in a lot of ways uh, for years, and then it may be a birth defect. It may be. But, but you know, they 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 like respin it later on when the when the child is having problems. Autism is on the rise. You know, depression is on the rise. I mean, however these problems manifest later on, it kind of you know potentially creates more customers. Sure. So, so in that sense, it it doesn't necessarily work. This is the problem we had with McKenna. McKenna was a drug that didn't work. It didn't prevent preterm birth. It didn't work to prevent preterm birth, but it worked in another way. It gave a woman who had a prior preterm birth a feeling that she was coming to the doctor to try to prevent another preterm birth and that she was able to get something that could help her. It let the doctor feel like he was doing something to help her. And then it it made money for the drug company, so it worked for the drug company. Then the drug company was able to fund key opinion leaders, researchers, the American College of OBGYN, and then they were able – this what worked for them. So these, these systems work because it's got a product behind it, even if they may not work at all or may not work well. And that's really the, the, the difficulty in trying to get accurate information out to the public because it's flying in the face of this system that's working, at least working in a financial way for so many, um, for so many stakeholders. You know, and you mentioned physicians earlier on, and I think it's worth touching on the, on the structure of um, physician payment because it's it's that same you know there's this same pool with the uh, you know doctors get paid you know and the way we are compensated it it it's not for outcomes uh, we're compensated on a per encounter you know schedule you know oh you saw this person for 25 minutes you know you get paid for that it doesn't matter you know how they're doing afterwards and so that's the predominant payment method and and just like you said you know is it easier to have a long drawn out conversation about, you know, the risks of these medications or is it easier to just say, you know what, this is safe and effective. I've heard this a lot. I know I'm not going to get in trouble for saying this and it's, I'm just going to kind of, you know, clock out my encounter and uh, let the family medicine folks deal with, deal with the consequences. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I'm smiling. I'm smiling because one of my um, one of my fellows. This might have been a decade ago or more. I gave this my my standard antidepressant and pregnancy lecture maybe uh, ten years mm-hmm. ago, and I, I'll never forget after the lecture, she was like rolling her eyes. She's like, "Oh my god, Adam!" After hearing that, like it would take me so long. It would make my day so long. You've just, you know, made my, ruined my, my clinic day so long with that lecture because to actually do the counseling on that would really be almost prohibitive in our current system to really try to drill down on these with the number of women that are on these medications. So I'm going to put you on potential effects. I'm going to put you on the spot now because I got you here and you've had a lot of time to think about it. Woman comes into your office. She's 17 years old. You've got 30 seconds. How do you counsel her on the, on the, on the risks of antidepressants in children? What are, what are the, what was the cleanest way you do it? 
you can't do it in 30 seconds. That's the thing. Yeah. You've got to take your time with the patient. And uh, yeah. fortunately, I've, uh, I try to do that with my patients, find out who they are, where they're coming from, what their mental health history is, get some background, figure it out, and then do the counseling in a compassionate, caring way that is not pill shaming, that's none of that, and try to still provide them with the, uh, you know, with the, with the accurate scientific information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I w- what I would say is something along the lines of, I'm trying to think how I would do it if someone came in, Doc, what should I know about these drugs? They cause, there's a, they're going to increase the chance of behavioral problems in, in your children. And so you better make sure that with what's going on, you know, that, that if it's serious enough that, that you're willing to take that risk. You know, I think that would probably be a very blunt way of saying it. I know it doesn't, like it was even hard for me to say it then. You could, you could probably hurt it because it's so heavy, right? Isn't that heavy? Because it's the same way I get kind of choked up when I have to talk to people about PSSD. Hey, dog, what should I know about this? Well, it's a very small group of people who never regain sexual functioning, you know, and it's like, you feel like the heaviness with that as well. It's, it's, it's like, cause, cause, cause this issue, it's right up there. I mean, to me, I, I put it right next to PSSD because of the longevity of it. It's, sure. it's scary to say, and it's scary to talk about. Has this just for my own curiosity, has yeah. this been um, acknowledged by any of the yeah. uh, leading medical authorities? I thought something came out of the UK recently acknowledging the existence of this as an actual side effect, as an actual complication. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. EMA did it a couple of years ago, second largest regulatory body in the world. And the interesting thing about it is that um, uh, FDA silent on it, you know, the, because, you know, because of Brexit, the UK is separate now. And so MHMR is the, the other really big group and they're silent on it as well. But I think Hong Kong has come out. Um, so there's a few health authorities who have now mandated its inclusion in the label. And we're in this interesting limbo now because like, cause I would want to know from FDA, it's like, why like, okay. So sec- the second largest drug regulator in the world has put this in the labels. What's keeping you, you know, what, what is it that you know that makes you feel like you don't want to act on something that's this important? Because, you know, I'm not going to say this is like a one, you know, one in 10 type of thing, but let's just say it's like a one in a thousand, you know, one in a thousand risk. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's bigger or whatever, but anytime someone takes that drug, I almost think about them as like, you know, I used to watch Wheel of Fortune growing up, but so it's like you had this really big Wheel of Fortune thing and it's like, you roll it. It's like Russian roulette. You just roll this thing. You don't know if it's going to happen to you. And if it, if it, and if your number comes up and if you hit PSSD, that's it, you know? And, but yeah, so it's, to me that it is the most terrifying risk of the antidepressants. Suicidal behavior, it's a walk in the park because you can monitor for it. If someone's getting worse, you can just have them come in frequently at the start you know, withdrawal problems, all of that kind of stuff. You can, you can mitigate it. You can, you can get them out of it safely. But once, once that happens to someone, there's, there's, there's not a lot you can do. And that's why it's so scary. It's, it's, yeah. 
I also wonder if it's a matter of of degree, which is that it it seems like it's it's it may not just be a yes no. You can tell me about this better than I can because I don't deal with these patients. But that there there's probably some degree. It may be a tip of the iceberg phenomenon where the folks that are really shut down sexually may be just that tip of the iceberg. But there may be a lot underneath the surface of people who have some degree then of dysfunction because of whatever alterations in those nerves uh, of the genitals or those parts of the brain. Is that the idea? Is that it's had some impact on the, 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 that part of the brain or on the, on the genitalia, on the nerves? I think pe- people don't really know, you know, some, some people think it's, uh, you know, central, like, uh, you know, within the brain, some people think it's a peripheral nerve problem. Um, that that's happening. There's like a small, a lot of people think that there could be something to do with small fiber neuropathy, you know, or a targeting of a specific sensory cell that is, more located within erogenous regions, um, so I don't know if it's. I don't. There's no clear pathophys, um, you know, of what's what's going on. But I do think that clearly it's it, it could be a dimensional problem where you could have some people who have identified it because it's so severe you cannot notice it. And usually these people, it's interesting, they have severe dissociation as well. It's it's not just a sexual thing for a big group of them. They feel disconnected. Um, they feel like they're watching their life through a movie, you know, and that, and that can happen when you're really blunted from your emotions as well. And so you have this psychological, uh, kind of blunting that goes along with it and it, and it's really, really frightening. Um, so I think there's probably some people out there who are having this and it hasn't, maybe it's, hasn't come to their awareness and, you know, maybe they're confusing it with another mental health problem. You know, it's getting misdiagnosed or it's treatment-resistant depression or something like that. But yeah, I, I think it could be in much milder variants. Yeah. I mean, I would think that something that could rise, uh, you know, something that could rise to that level where it became very clinically obvious may, then may just the way human biology works have other degrees, you know, in other folks that may not be as full-blown. Yeah. It certainly yeah. impacts. I, I do like to tell people when I do the lecture because one, one area where there's some overlap here is that um, I tell people that when you're putting a chemical into a biological system, particularly a rapidly developing biological system like a like a fetus, a developing fetus or a developing fetal brain, when you're putting a chemical into a rapidly developing biological system, you can really see chemical consequences. And where I know we see that is with male sperm formation. So there are studies on that that have looked at the impact of SSRIs on male sperm parameters, and they're there. They have shown that. Uh, decreased motility, more um, uh, abnormal variants, more breakup of the of the of the spermatozoa or however they grade that so we can see that and again it shows a direct chemical effect there's one study in particular i remember his name was akashe a-k-a-s-h-e-h and he wrote a paper it was a randomized control trial and it was using i believe zoloft not for depression though but for um for premature ejaculation so with that model, he took the issue of depression off the table and showed that still the, the folks that were being exposed to, I think it was Zoloft, had alterations in their sperm parameters. So again, we're seeing just a direct, you know, a direct chemical effect from these things. I think you mentioned a statistic a moment ago, well, it's probably 20 minutes back, but I want to come back to it. What, what percentage of women, pregnant women, are on, are on antidepressants? 
you know, we don't have great data and it really depends on study by study and uh, and location by location roughly it looks like it's probably five to ten percent I hope that I hope I'm being consistent with what I said earlier but roughly probably five to ten percent in the US and then it's quoted more like three percent over in Europe I think those are the rough numbers in my own experience I think that ten percent number is high I'm not seeing that I, I work out of the state of Massachusetts I think our number Number here probably is more like in the five percent range, um, but that those are the rough ballpark numbers, like five yeah. to ten percent. A study just came out, and I believe it was a U.S. study looking at breastfeeding women. Uh, what was the most common medications they were on? And the most common medication used by breastfeeding women is SSRI antidepressants, and that came in. I think it was eight or eight to nine percent. Wow, wow. Okay, I yeah, because I. You know, I, I've I followed you and I've known you for 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 a while. I think I've known you back when you were doing um, lectures for Madden America. I think you did a lecture series for them a while ago. And you know the you know the things that you talk about because I mean yeah. So let's say we're talking about one in twenty women who are pregnant on these medications and these risks. I mean they're so. And I get it, it's not going to happen. It's it's probably the majority of people are not going to have serious problems, but there are some who probably would. And, um, I mean, it just seems so important. I, I've always been kind of astounded at how, how little pickup there's been of this. Um, and, um, because I think it's, I think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, I think yeah. the media has really the media has really failed on this. And again, if you look at the media as again a model of a of a that group, I keep pointing to the middle. But you've got public, you've got patients in the public here, you've got the drug companies here trying to sell them drugs. But really, between the two, you should have this real regulatory and information system of people working on behalf of patients in the public, like um, like the media, like the regulatory body. Bodies. But again, so many of those systems there that should be working on behalf of patients and the public or our political system as well are funded by pharma. And so they end up really not working on behalf of patients and the public the way that they should. And a lot of our journalism is funded by pharma. You can see that you turn on the TV and uh, it feels like it's every other commercial or whatever is for a, is for a drug. And so I think that there's a, a, a push away from that. And again, because at the end of the day, nobody makes any money from a patient not taking a drug, really. It's the money gets made when the patients are taking the medication and that then lubes the, the system the way our, 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 current, uh, our current system works. What's the solution to, to this? Uh, great <laughs> great question. It's a great question. Yeah. No, I think it's for people to keep trying to get the information out like you're doing on your tweets, on your podcast, talking mm. to each other about this stuff, trying to inform each other, trying to cut through the information that's really like profit-driven propaganda. That's what, that's what you got to get past. What's the information that you're getting as a human being, as a citizen, what the information that you're getting that's really designed to maximize sales and profits for large corporations versus what's the truth and then try to seek out those sources of truth, teach other people about it to try to um, get information. Information is really, I think, the solution to this. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I thought about it as well. And I think actually social media is the answer. I know that seems kind of maybe 
maybe not thought out, but I actually think it's probably the only way you could compete with groups that have that much money because you can have individual people um, reach very large audiences on social media. And so I think you you being on Twitter and, and all of that and the interviews you do, I think it's just good stuff. I, th- I think that's how we're going to bring it to them. Well, this is, I, I think you're right. I think this is also why there's this big push to try to censor social media, um, because this is a way of information getting out to the public that's not going to increase sales and profits, uh, basically for large corporations. And so none of the large corporations um, in the sort of establishment is going to want that. Um, and so I think it, th- th- that's what, why we're seeing a push to try to censor independent voices. Um, and that's why I think it's so essential for people to push back against that, to not fall for this whole misinformation, disinformation and, and censorship stuff and to try to keep pushing back to keep information um, free, uncensored and let people try to, to get at the truth and hear good, accurate information. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think um, I think we've gone a good amount of time and I have really enjoyed talking to you and kind of covering all of this. So I want to I thank you. Um, so much for agreeing to come on. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I appreciate your good work on this. People can find me. I don't have a book to sell or anything like that. People can find me. I put out articles. I'm a full-time clinician taking care of patients. And so uh, um, uh, mostly what I do in terms of uh, getting information out on this, um, other than writing and lecturing, is posting things on Twitter at Adam Urato one If people are, are curious at the, the recent papers in this area, uh, that's where they can find them unbelievably kind of underfollowed on Twitter. I'm going to really have to kind of blast you. The stuff that you put out is that good. So uh, yeah, find him on Twitter and, and show him some love. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot. Yosef. All right. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittduringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.